Thanks for downloading Speaking of Suicide. I'm Dan Holland, one of the podcast producers from Adventurous Audio. Now this episode is a bit different because it takes the form of a conversation between Shona McPherson and Professor Rory O'Connor. Shona is a counsellor and life coach who works with Mikey's Line and will be a familiar voice to you if you listen to the podcast regularly. Rory is one of the world's leading experts in the field of suicide prevention. He's Professor of Health Psychology, Director of the Suicide Behaviour Research Laboratory and Head of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Group at the University of Glasgow. He's passionate about trying to understand the root causes of suicide in a bid to work out what we can do to reduce the shocking suicide statistics worldwide. His recent book, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It, is a searingly honest search through this challenging and often upsetting subject. It's a book that's written with such compassion and humanity we couldn't resist asking Rory to take part in speaking of suicide. And since it was Shona who first brought Rory's book to our attention and is such a passionate advocate herself of finding ways to stop suicide, we thought it should be Shona who talks with Rory. Speaking of suicide is meant to be open and honest. That's the whole point. But that doesn't always make it an easy listen. So if you do need to, press pause. Speaking of Suicide is made in collaboration with and in support of Mikey's Line, and I'll give out their contact details at the end of the podcast. Rory, it's a pleasure to meet you, and um, I guess we're, we're here in your office here in Garton Abel, yeah, yeah. and I've come down from the Highlands, where Mikey's Line, who works with the Speaking of Suicide podcast, where Mikey's Line's based, and Mikey's Line was set up in 2015 in response to Two, two young men taking their lives within 48 hours of each other. And I suppose we understand from the research about suicide that Scotland, the four nations, has been the highest rates of suicide. And then within Scotland itself, there are certain hotspots. I think this year Dundee was city was the highest, and then next to that, the Highlands and Islands. And um, so maybe as a starting point, I know we'll go broader, but maybe as a starting point, we could just, I could just ask you if it's okay, um, why, why do you think there is such a problem in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland with suicide? Well, first of all, I'm delighted to speak face-to-face, Shona. It's lovely to have you here in Glasgow. And, and hopefully, some as we hopefully exit COVID-19 and the pandemic, we can have more face-to-face meetings in that mm-hmm. sense of connection many of us have, have missed. And obviously, really thinking about connection and connectivity mm-hmm. so important when we think about suicide. But going back to your question about um, the sort of different rates of suicide across the UK and, and across Scotland and the highlands of Scotland. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. So first of all, there's no one single factor associated with suicide. And there's yet there's evidence that in rural communities, suicide rates are high. But similarly, there's evidence that in urban inner city communities, suicide rates are high. But although we don't know for certain why the rates are were higher, certainly in the highlands and islands, obviously it's part to do with potentially isolation, lack of connectivity or connectedness. And maybe there's something also to do with um, access to services or the services that people need available um, when when they need them. And I think that goes not just for the Highlands of Scotland, but across Mm -hmm. Scotland and beyond. We need to think about tailored services for the people who are most vulnerable. And I know I remember speaking to a man once who had attempted suicide from the north of Scotland in the Highlands. And he, he talked about 
living in the fish bowl, a goldfish bowl, and he was frightened to reach out for help because people knew him, and and he mm -hmm. and he didn't know who he was going to bang into if he went and sought help. So I think there's something about linking that in with shame mm -hmm. and sort of issues around masculinity, what it is to be a man, and oh, I, am I the sort of person who should be talking about my feelings? So I think there's so many complex factors at, at play. And then also in rural communities, there's greater access to means of suicide. And that is obviously as part of the, this puzzle of trying to understand suicide risk. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's all about trying to remind ourselves that although sadly we hear this, the statistics periodically on, on the news and over two suicides per day in Scotland, it's so important that we remember that behind every one of those deaths is a family, is a person, is a tragedy. And so what, what, the work that we've been doing over the last well, 25 years is trying to get some sense of understanding the common factors associated with suicide so we can help and support and protect. But then also just trying to remember what, 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 how do we think about somebody's unique and lived life and what can we learn from that to hopefully prevent future suicides. Yeah, absolutely, I hear you. And what I'm hearing there is there is no one reason why the Highlands is, is so high and why other areas are, but there's many things that we can be doing to make a difference in that. Yeah, but so just on that sort of, the, the, what, I think what's, for, in Scotland, we've been doing for many years is trying to understand suicide both at a national level mm -hmm. but also at a local level. Mm -hmm. So each, for the last time, it must be 20 years now, Scotland's had the National Suicide Prevention Strategy and Action Plan. Yeah. And one of the central planks of that is having local responses. So mm -hmm. the needs uh, of the population of, at risk in the Highlands will be very different from the needs of a population of people at risk in, in Glasgow, in East End of Glasgow, for example. And I think that understanding that local context is absolutely crucial. Yeah. So there's no one size fits all. In the same way that there's so many factors associated with suicide risk, it's that not recognising that we need to tailor responses, not just to individuals, but to communities. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you feel that's happening? Do you feel that these responses are yeah, no, tailored? <clears throat> yeah, I think, I, think we, I think things are. I mean, I think Scotland over the last 10 or 20 years really has led the way in terms of developing national action plans and and really trying to galvanize support and galvanize services and political will because mm -hmm. i think for suicide prevention i was trying to think about suicide prevention at all levels so first of all you've got what we all as individuals can do to do our small bit to prevent suicide mm -hmm. but in communities can do their bit and, and then obviously at the top level is the sort of societal and political will. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that political will, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, we're really fortunate that suicide prevention has never been a political issue in Scotland in the sense that all, oh, I've lived in Scotland now since 1997, I think it is, mm -hmm. and it's never been a political football. Every one of the parties who've been in power okay. have really prioritised suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. and, and it's worth noting that although every, tra every suicide is a tragedy, um, that historic over the last 10 or 20 years the suicide rates have decreased in Scotland by yeah. about 20 percent yeah. now sadly before the pandemic we'd started to see this increase in 2018 and 2019 but that was the same as across the UK suicide yeah. rates had gone up so we need to try and disentangle why that is yeah. and part of it might be to do with the fact <clears throat> that we've had a change in profile of people now dying by suicide so the group of people most likely to die by suicide are middle-aged men um, it, but the, my concern is we've now and, um, and I'm not saying that those aren't those statistics aren't concerning of course they are but if we look at 
underneath the statistics, those most, re the most recent increases in 2018 and 2019 and then 2020, slight decrease, which is good news. Mm -hmm. But there still is this increase amongst young people. Mm -hmm. Young female suicides have started to increase. So we need to understand, again, this idea of, although I think it is 71% of all suicides in Scotland are, are by men, and we need to really tackle that, that, that group and support that, that men in particular, but we need to understand these other groups at risk. Absolutely. And especially as we leave and recover from the pandemic, uh -huh. although we haven't seen an increase as a result of the pandemic, my concern is moving forward. We, we've been doing work in which we've been tracking the mental health and well-being of across adults in the UK, and we've also another study funded by government in, in Scotland. And what we know for certain is, although yet the suicide rates haven't increased post-pandemic, which is great, but there is evidence of increased distress and, there, and in particular amongst four groups of people. So there's increased suicidal thoughts amongst young people. Mm -hmm. There's increased suicidal thoughts amongst people with pre-existing mental health problems, people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds. And then if we look at mental health more generally, there's an increase in per mental health amongst women. So there's four groups of people we need to be really trying to target and support and protect. Now when we, because recovery is going to be bumpy and We've had all the economic protections of furlough and so on during the pandemic. Now I think we need to be so, so vigilant moving forward so that that increase in mental distress does not translate into increases in suicide. Yeah, right, absolutely. And a lot you said there, Uri, and the thing that I wanted, I would think towards the end maybe we could go back and talk more specifically about young people and some of the other risk groups that you mentioned. But maybe sticking at the macro briefly, um, maybe to get out of the way, because <laughs> it's not much that we can maybe do in this conversation about it. But from my time working as a support worker, um, we would work with some people who had complicated mental health needs mm -hmm. and were often um, highly suicidal, moving from crisis to crisis. And no disrespect to anybody working in a mental health service provision, people all doing an amazing job with what they can. But the waiting lists were awful and the individual support that was collaborative, as you talk about in your book, to that, that person being involved in their care, it just wasn't there. And it was incredibly difficult to work with somebody and just took to what we were doing was sort of you know crisis management and again I hope we can talk about um, safety planning and things like that but yeah how what can we do about this? Well th this is a yeah. perennial problem and, mm. and I mean in every country that I'm aware of in terms of mental health services yeah. um, there's not enough has been done and although there has been this uh, this push for parity of esteem for mental health provision and physical health provision you're right, the waiting lists are unacceptably high, and in particular for children and young people, for some of the waiting lists for child and adolescent mental health. Yeah. But that's across, that's not just Scotland, that's the UK, that's America, it's an all slightly different America, different model of care, mm -hmm. obviously, but lots of countries. So I don't think we cracked how, how we best do that because I think what we need to do is try to deliver as much support in the moment, right? And But then that, that in that crisis, there's one something to do with crisis support, and then there's something to do with longer term dealing with complex mental health needs, as you touched mm -hmm. on there. Now, in Scotland, we are doing what's known as a distress brief intervention-based oh, work. Yeah, we and we're involved in that. And, <clears throat> and first in the world, if anything, like, and, and, and totally novel in that there's no waiting list. And so the distress brief, brief intervention started off as this pilot in, in four areas in Scotland. And 
Um, and obviously what it means is that anybody in distress, not somebody who's acutely suicidal, mm. but somebody in distress can be referred into getting up to 14 days of support. But there's no waiting list. The minute you do make the referral, within 24 hours, the person is um, contacted and offered the support. Now, the point of that is it's trying to support people in those moments of crisis because we do know that mm -hmm. crises tend to be really bunched together in time. They can come back again, of course, but what you're trying to do is support people in those moments, those crucial moments. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we need to think of new models of care and support. And I think the DBI, the Distress Brief Intervention Programme, that's one such approach. But I think what we need to think about is, well, how do we then deal with people with much more complex mental health needs? Because DBI was not designed for people with severe and yes. enduring mental health problems. Yes. That's not the purpose of it. Because yes. those pathways do exist. But what we need to do is, well, actually ask ourselves, are they tailored to the needs of the population who really, really need them? Yes. And I'll say one more thing about treatment and support. And this is, this is an international problem we have, is that although... Um, in my book, I talk about the evidence base for um, the treatment of people who are suicidal. And, and the evidence base is growing for psychological treatments, psychological therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy or dialectical behavioural therapy or whatever the therapy is. But we don't know whether they work for men. Mm -hmm. And you think, think of that for a second, right? Three quarters, in the UK, three quarters of all suicides, 71% in Scotland, are, are, all, are men and we don't know whether these treatments work for men mm -hmm. and the reason that is is because most of the studies there's not enough men are recruited into the studies or the studies aren't large enough for you to look and look at sort of dissect the results to see do those results work or does that treatment work for a man versus a woman or never mind other gender genders and other sexual identities there's a whole loads of stuff going on there so from so as a field as somebody who, who works in the suicide prevention research field that is a big challenge we have. So we, so we need to understand that better and then translate that into treatment on the ground mm. and treatment in Highlands or in Glasgow, no matter where it is, it shouldn't be a postcode lottery. It should be the, the access to these services. Access. Everybody should have the same yeah, access. Absolutely. And when you mentioned the DBI service, um, they, I think Inverness is one of the pilot areas yeah. where they were certainly on the ground. And the thing that you've said really resonated that it wasn't designed for people, it was for people in crisis, not highly suicidal, but, um, with complex mental illness. And so, yeah, we referred folks into it and I, I think it was a good service, but it probably wasn't appropriate. And as you say, then the need for these tailored interventions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I suppose yeah, it's probably a difficult one for you to say, when are these going to come? Because it's well, no, the funding, uh, where, where is the... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, part of me sometimes thinks that, well, so when you think about mental health um, problems or mental illness, whatever term you use, it's usually also embedded in social disadvantage. If you look at the yeah. statistics, it, it's, it's, social, it's an issue of social inequality. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to tackle that social inequality because... Often one of the drivers of that social inequality leading to poor mental health is early um, life adversity, so yeah. childhood, adver childhood adverse experiences. And again, we've done a lot of work now looking at the, the association between, obviously, adverse childhood experiences, mental health and suicide risk. And, mm -hmm. and it's, the relationship is just stark as a very stark thing, right? It's so clear. Mm -hmm. So we need to do more. And that early intervention work is absolutely crucial. So think about, well, actually, so we, we know that, yeah, somebody who experiences early life trauma is at increased risk of poor mental health, but it's not inevitable. And what we need to do is better understand what are, how can we protect, 
What are the resilience factors? What else can we do to ensure that those young people who have grown up starting out in adversity flourish? Yeah. And I think in Scotland we are trying to do that, but I think there is no easy fix. And there's the, mm. the Children and Young People Programme Delivery Board, I think it's called now, or Implementation Board at government level, and it's trying to do all those things. Mm. And part of that is Scotland is like one of the first countries in the world to do properly trauma-informed training for the whole workforce at the front line. So that, because part of it is helping us understand, um, and when I say us, I mean any one of us in the community um, to understand what might be the impact of somebody who's experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. And part of that impact is that somebody who experienced trauma may not have any trust in services, may not have trusts in adults in general. And that maybe then the impact then is they're less likely to seek help because Everybody let, everybody's always let them down. Nobody treats me well. I've been treated. I'm not treated with, with common humanity or respect. So why should I reach out for help? Because when I reach out for help, it's just failure and, and being treated badly. That's the, sadly the reality for too many people. So, so I think part of the understanding is us then all trying to think about what it, what it feels like for somebody who experienced trauma. And then how can we then advocate and make sure the changes happen to services and supports. Mm-hmm. But then crucially, we have to make the services available and that takes investment. And, mm-hmm. and there has been improve, improvement in investment, but we always, always can do better. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be quite overwhelming actually, as you're saying all of that, I'm beginning to feel a little bit overwhelmed at the, the scale of what we need to understand and work. Yeah, yeah but absolutely, right. totally. It is overwhelming, but I always try and remember that one per- each one of us can make a difference. And each one of us, by just treating the person next to us with respect and reaching out in that way, I think we can, one by one, we all build up and, and, then, and then we build a movement. And, and yeah, it's overwhelming, but one of the other things that we're doing in Scotland is, again, we're currently reviewing the next phase of the Suicide Prevention Strategy and Action Plan, hopefully planning for the next 10 years. But one of the things we've done thus far is basically we set up this new social movement the United to Prevent Suicide. And what we're trying to do is grow a social movement to get people have a sense of we all can do something to prevent suicide. That's not about, that's not about advocating responsibility. That's trying yeah. to us empower ourselves yeah. and our neighbours. And then we all can be a voice to a government and say we need to do more. Absolutely. In your book, you talk about what's happening to somebody when they become suicidal. And you spoke really articulately in your book about this this sense of entrapment and um, like suicide being a cry of pain rather than a cry of help. Um, somebody being sort of locked into their inner world where they feel like there is no hope, that they're, they're stuck. And the only way out is is to end their life, not mm-hmm. because they get last thing to go to you and get the back. Not that they want to die, but they don't want to live anymore. So yeah, it'd be wonderful just to hear more in your own words, Rory, about understanding yeah. that. So it's that idea that, to my mind, suicide is more about wanting the pain to end, mm-hmm. the mental pain to end rather than wanting to end your life. It's just like you can't see any other way to end that pain and you're just utterly exhausted. And that's so that sense of being trapped or by mental pain or by life circumstances. And so for me, what, one of the questions I continually ask myself and I ask, I ask others to think about is to, well, at, when, when, when somebody is, or when we're trying to prevent suicide, we're trying to see what are the drivers to contribute or make people feel more trapped, right? So that sense of being trapped can, again, work at all different levels. So on an individual level, often that's triggered by a series of maybe interpersonal crises, like relationship issues or trauma, as we mentioned already. And you can see how that can contribute to feelings of 
um, defeat and humiliation and rejection. And then, and these, so in terms of the sort of precursors to that trap, that trapped mental pain, it's like I feel worthless, and I'm just caught in that situation. Now, so that's at an individual level, and but then if you bring it right up, if you're somebody who presents to clinical services uh, with mental health problems and you're not treated with respect or you go and try and seek, get support for not being able to get find a job or whatever it may be, or at school you're, you're treated as if you're not worth anything. Of course, all, that, all those things are doing mm-hmm. is contributing to a sense of entrapment because it makes you, people often talk about being felt, they're, they're made to feel even more worthless, more um, that they're a burden. And one of the key drivers we know from, in terms of understanding the suicidal mind is that sense of being, people who die by suicide often talk about being a burden on others. And, and so, you, so the question I'm always asking is, what are the contributors to that sense of entrapment that somebody then is so over, becomes so overwhelmed that they then see suicide as the only option? So that could be, yeah, that somebody who's experienced awful, awful trauma early in life has never had the support and, uh, to really manage that pain or make sense of that pain that they're going through. And then you can see if that happens off and off through life, well, we're, we're, we're just... We're all finite in the amount of pain we can experience. In the same way, there's there's only a limit to the amount of physical pain we can tolerate. It's the same with mental pain. And if you're somebody then who's gone through repeatedly experiences of trauma, you can sort of see them how they just become exhausted, utterly overwhelmed with life, and and, and life is and that's the only option for them. Where somebody else is basically every journey is different, every story is different. So it's not necessarily. Is it, so when we when we do a lot of work, which look at checklist approaches of risk factors, and I think some senses that's okay because it gives you some sense of who might be vulnerable, people who are unemployed or people being bereaved or whoever it may be. But for me, it's always trying to understand how all those experiences impact on you as an individual, and then how it changes your view of your past or impacts on your view of your past, your present, and crucially your future. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you're describing this sense of entrapment and often coming from, from a background of trauma, it's sounding like for, for many, and I know you're not saying this for everybody, but it's it's a build-up over time, it's a long chronic process. And I'm curious, with sometimes you know, we hear of these deaths and it's the family, we've, it's come from nowhere, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe they're not obvious risk factors there or... Um, those things, do you think it's the same feeling, but it just comes so unknown and it just comes out of the blue that it just flattens people? <clears throat> yeah, so, so I think that's such an important point because there's different, yeah, so there's different pathways to suicidal thoughts and then behaviours. And yet for some, as I've described, it's this chronic over time for long, and often that's associated with social inequality and disadvantage over a very long period of time. Again, there's lots of examples, sadly. So yet the family just did not see it coming at all. And that's, well, that's for a couple of reasons. One is, so for, so, so we've been doing a lot of work on what's known as social perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And social perfectionism is this sort of personality characteristic in which that you, that you think that other people in your life have this, these really high expectations for you and your behavior and whatever your achievements, whatever they are. And it's, but these aren't real expectations, it's what you think they expect of you. 
And so for people who are really high in social perfectionism, and I'm one of them, is your every day is an opportunity for to fail others and to, let, to feel you're letting other people down. And then you're more likely to feel defeated and humiliated or a sense of shame or rejection or whatever it is. Now, that's often hidden. Mm. And so the number of families and people, in my, and people I've known who basically, from the external person looking in and they're, you couldn't you couldn't understand why on earth they would feel suicidal, but they were experiencing mental pain for periods of time, which was hidden, and that sort of mask. And one of the things I can say in the book is, there's no one face of somebody. There's no one type of person who is suicidal. It could be any one of us, mm-hmm. and and that's important for a number of reasons. One is it helps us to be vigilant, but two, it helps us challenge the stigma around what it is like to have somebody who's struggling with their mental health, because it genuinely can be any one of us. So yeah, so it's not. So the point about bringing up the social perfectionism is, is it, in the book I think I describe it as having psychological thin skin. So that if you then experience, think of two, say, young people, both, for example, God forbid, experiencing bullying. And, and if so one young person who's been bullied but isn't very socially perfectionistic, they're unlikely, the impact on their mental health of the bullying is probably less than somebody who has high in social perfectionism and that idea that you're piercing your social perfectionism is this psychological thin skin and then when the arrows of adversity are thrown at you or whatever, whatever, bold, bold, whatever the word, whatever the verb is for happens with arrows, um, but it's much more likely to impact on your mental health. And so I think when we're thinking about trying to understand suicide risk for that person I just described, it looks, and we've done some work with adolescents just on this particular issue, looking at self-harm more generally. And exactly we find that it's young people who are more likely to self-harm, we're we're not necessarily the ones who'd experience the most stress in their lives, but even those who experience moderate levels of stress, if they also are high in social perfectionism, they're much more likely to self-harm. And that sense of rejection, right, which or, or, or pain, in adolescence is often really, really hard for us as, as adults to understand because we know from all the sort of brain imaging research now is that, for example, in adolescence, there's this period, this critical window in which adolescents are so, so sensitive to what we describe as, as social signals in the environment and especially if they're negative, like bullying, like anything else, which is like basically seems like an attack on you in terms of rejection. So, so I think for me, it's trying to understand the question is always, does that person feel trapped? And the causes of that entrapment could be um, short term or long term. Yeah. And, and when we think about prevention, that's what we need to think about those different profiles. Yes, absolutely. I read quite a bit about the risk factors for suicide. Um, but reading your book and thinking about entrapment, those risk factors made much more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you could explain what the risk factors are with that uh, lens of entrapment. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> Well, I think the way we assess entrapment is probably a good place to begin. And we use the scale which was developed by a psychologist, Paul Gilbert, quite a few years ago. But ask, I mean, it, it asks simple questions like, to what extent do you feel trapped inside yourself, right? And that's one way of trying to understand that mental pain. But, but the, the, sig- the signals or signs of, su- of suicide or somebody is suicidal, <clears throat> there are a number of them, but they're easy. To, it's really important to highlight they're easier to detect after an event sadly and and i suppose what i'm trying to do with the book is help people become more aware and so there are things like obviously changes in behavior so in addition to that entrapment or being hopeless but things about talking about being a burden on others 
changes in their behavior in terms of their, either their eating, their sleeping, sexual behavior, alcohol, drugs. And alcohol, drugs and sleeping are particularly important, I think, because the three of those we would describe as a impact on your homeostatic function. So you're, if, you, if you don't sleep well, that, that makes your, um, your body's capacity to problem solve, to regulate your emotions much more difficult. And the same with drugs and alcohol, and especially if you think about alcohol being a, a depressant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if you think more broadly then of the sort of people who are experiencing chronic stress, one of the things we, just, we talk about, I talk about in the book is the work we've been doing on cortisol, on the sort of stress system. And again, we need, so when we encounter threatening situations, our body releases cortisol and that's sort of to prepare us to fight or flee and, or, and, but also cortisol, we also think is associated with problem solving, again, emotion regulation, emotion regulation and decision making. So if you think of somebody who's been, so the example of somebody who's experienced trauma early in life, so that repeatedly being basically metaphorically being beaten right, in, terms of, in that context, the body's continually having to respond. And so, so what we think happens in people who are suicidal is the stress system breaks down, doesn't work as well, you're releasing less cortisol, and then so it means that physiologically your body's not preparing you as well as it could to fight or flee. Mm-hmm. And if you add to that the sense of mental pain, this entrapment, you're this you can start to see how this perfect storm of factors comes together. And then add to that, we've also shown that the trauma people tell us they experience as kids, that predicts how much cortisol people will release in our lab when we do some of our experiments. So, so what I'm just trying to illustrate is that when we think about suicide, we think we, take, we have to take this sort of lifespan perspective, mm-hmm. but also acknowledging the complexity and, that, and then in terms of then warning signs, yeah, that sense of being trapped, burden, hopeless, changes in behavior. Some people also um, may have tried to get their life affairs in order. Um, so things like that, that, that there's something that you just can't quite put your finger on. And then the other one I would say, which is an important one, which again I talk about in the book, is that for people who, who is, say somebody is in the midst of a depressive episode, <clears throat> and then for no, for no apparent reason, their mood seems to lift and they, well, it seems as if they're, they're okay again. Our concern there is there's warning, that's a sort of uh, alarm bells because what we think may happen is when someone's in the depths of a depressive episode, you actually don't have the motivation or capacity to plan a suicidal act. But maybe then what happens sadly for some people is in the midst of that depressive episode, they decide, actually, I've got the solution to my problems. I'll end my life. And then as the mood lifts, you then get more of the cognitive where for all and the motivation to plan the act. So, so my, my message in terms of warning sign is if there's an unexplained improvement in mood, check in with the person to see that they are okay. Because of course, if the person is getting treatment or support or the crisis has resolved, of course that's understandable why the mood has increased. Is that unexplained change? That would be another one I would look at. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. That's really helpful. And then next was going from there. You've mentioned there asking someone if, there is, if they are okay. Um, from, on a professional level, as a counsellor, I'm quite regularly would ask somebody um, if, they're, if they're feeling suicidal or if they've had suicidal thoughts. But recently in my personal life, a couple of, over the last few months, I've been in conversations with friends and they've said something like, just had told me a life situation. I just had enough. 
And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you've just had enough. And I almost just ignored that. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, hang on, you're avoiding this, Shona. They are actually, I think, trying to say something else. And I've noticed kind of my heart rate going up and, and then that kind of, okay, get on with this, say this. And, <laughs> and then asking them, and then this sort of, from, from in both incidences, the, the, the person then decided they did want to say a little bit more. Not one case, not a lot, one mm-hmm. quite a bit. But I just, just for myself, doing this as a job, and then still it's mm-hmm. so hard in my mm-hmm. personal life, all of that is supposed to say, how can anybody listening to this um, ask someone if they're suicidal? How How's the best way to do that? And how can they get beyond their own nerves and awkwardness about that? Or even fear of saying the wrong thing or the myth of that uh, they might even be putting someone more at risk? Yeah, well, just to tackle that last yes. bit, which about <laughs> putting somebody more at risk is, so there's no evidence at all that asking somebody whether they're suicidal plants the idea in their head. But the evidence does show that asking somebody directly are they suicidal can get them the help and support they require. So it's really important that we continue to challenge that myth, right? So it's definitely a myth. And going back to the question about asking about suicide, of course it's difficult. I mean, and I've asked that question countless times now, and it's, it does get easier, but it's still really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And and I actually talk about a person I met uh, in, the, in the book who who basically had seen a documentary that I was involved in and the documentary gave him the courage to ask the question of one of his friends and and his, friends, his friend was suicidal and got the help and support he needed. And again, I've come across that many, many times now. And and I talked, but the example that the, that guy in the book was, um, basically he didn't know how to answer the question. He was petrified asking the question and he fumbled and said all the wrong words but he said enough that it opened up the conversation and his friend just started crying because nobody had ever asked him about how he was feeling. And then the next day, the guy, his friend went to, spoke to his GP, I think it was, and then got, got support. And then, but what they'd agree, they had an agreement, which was if, they, if he ever feels like that again, please contact him again. And he did. And uh, so, mm-hmm. so that's, for me, that, that story, the, the, the guy contact, got in touch with me to tell me that story. And, and I thought it was so important because it demonstrates a number of things. One is you don't have to have the right words. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you do it, if you say it with basically a sense of humanity, that you care and compassion, that's the most important bit for me. That's the first thing most important. In terms of asking the question, though, one of the things I think is so important is if we think about any interaction we ever have with anybody, right? So if I frame a, if I want, if I'm asking you a question and I want that answer to be no, I'll ask that question in a particular way mm-hmm. and you'll implicitly pick up on that and you'll say no. Mm-hmm. It's the same for, if you're asking the question to your friend or colleague, whoever it may be, are you suicidal? If you do it in, a, in such a way that you really want that to be no, because of course it's, you, you're scared if that answer is going to be yes. But if you if you think that, the person will probably pick up on it and they'll probably just not disclose. So my message would please, I know it's difficult, but try and be as open to that question being that the answer is yes. And 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 don't mealy move it around. Just ask directly, are you thinking of in your life? Are you have you thought about taking your own life? Be direct. And then that response, try not to minimize, try not to basically say things like oh but your your life your your it'll be fine your life's all this that and the other right it's just the person often needs heard and especially if they've never said it before it's a big thing to disclose and there's often shame associated with feeling suicidal 
So it's trying just to be there in the moment with the person, be non-judgmental. And then it's about trying this. One of the things I say repeatedly in the book is it's all about collaboration, right? So collaboration and compassion and connection, the three C's effectively. But that sense of then we're trying to work out together, okay, what will we do next? If, if the, your friend discloses that they're suicidal, then if you then that could be, right, let's agree to speak to your GP or to somebody else you know who's an, or another mental health professional, whatever it is. And then it's about trying to make sure the person's safe and just asking them, do you think you can keep yourself safe between the disclosure of the suicidal thoughts and maybe going to see your GP or always, always though, if, you, if the person themselves doesn't think that they can keep themselves safe, then I would just always go for emergency services as your ultimate response. Yes. But that, but so yeah, and then I think the yeah. So the last thing is that I most like and I I because people tell me they're always when you meet me at a party. These are the stories that people always tell me. Is, um, and and the reality is I don't genuinely don't think I've ever come across anybody who's asked the question, and the person's been offended or you've hurt or harmed. So. And all my years working in the area, all I know is that this, the stories, or maybe I've only been told those stories, but I just don't think so. Usually asking a question will give you a response. And even if the person doesn't admit it the first time, it start, it's, it's opened up that conversation potentially for the future. And I've definitely come across lots of people over the years who they asked once in one occasion and the person said, no, no, not at all, not at all. But then later, it was they talked about it at a later date. Yeah. So it's opening that that having the door open a bit, even if the door's just ajar, and the person doesn't walk through it in the sense of talking about their suicidal thoughts initially. Yeah. They may do in the future. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was just thinking as well. Like, if someone isn't suicidal, and you ask the question, and even if they're never suicidal in the future, in the act of asking them the question. We're just making it more acceptable to talk yeah. about mm -hmm. suicide. Yeah. And even them, then they might go, they might be worried about somebody else and say, oh yeah, my, my mate asked me the other day, I didn't mind, I thought it was lovely that they cared that yeah, much. Yeah. And yeah. kudos to them, they were brave. So it's just really yeah. important, isn't it? And, and I think most people, if we are genuine, we're sincere and thoughtful, even if we're stumbling over our words mm -hmm. and um, thinking we're saying the worst thing, people people see that, they oh, feel totally. your authenticity, your yeah, care. totally. And yeah. And I think it's a bit just being authentic and mm. genuine and whatever and true to yourself. Mm. And I, the other bit, which is worth saying, I did a, a documentary a couple of years ago with, you know, no, it was last year with Roman Kemp, the oh, DJ. Yeah, and, and part of that he did was he, he met this group of kids, or not kids, young men in, I think somewhere in Kent or somewhere, or wherever it was, I can't remember. Mm. But their big thing was amongst their group of friends was always ask twice. So it's not so when you ask you know, ask that question are you are you doing okay if you're just asking a general mental health question, yeah. usually if you ask that question once, people's automatic response is yeah I'm fine, but then there's are you really okay, and that's I think that's a useful piece of of advice and I think certainly that's what I would always do is always ask more than yes. once because we've almost got this sort of cultural thing of. How are you doing? It's like saying hi, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So then we're oh, fine. How are you doing? Yeah. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, right. He actually wants to know. Yeah. yeah. That um, comes back to that point I made earlier about about the, the if you ask the question in such a way which you sort of want the the answer to be one way, you'll get that response. Mm -hmm, Whereas yes. exactly as asking it the second time means oh you oh you, they really do want to know what I'm what I'm what I want or yeah, how yeah, I'm feeling. Absolutely. Uh, lots of thoughts are sparking now, and I'll try and quickly order them. Um, yeah, maybe briefly, you mentioned asking someone if they have suicidal thoughts rather than if, if they're suicidal, which I know 
that, and we can bless both and all that. Mm-hmm. But just sticking with suicidal thoughts themselves, how common are they, Rory? How common is it for someone to, if someone's having suicidal thoughts right now, they might think, oh my gosh, I'm really, this is awful, and, and even judge themselves about that and make their mental mm-hmm. health even worse. So it might be useful just to think about yeah, that. Yeah, so it depends on which, um, it depends on, there's lots of studies that have looked at this, and and it depends which age group you're looking at. So if you look at adults, we do, we've done studies. Um, well, actually, we'll start with young adults. We've, we've done a study in Scotland, nationally representative of adults age 18 to 34 in Scotland. And then when we asked, we we're trying to look at suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts. And off the top of my head, I think it was um, 16% of between, no, 20%, 20%, I think it was, 20% of the adults reported having suicidal thoughts, right? At some, stage in, at, at uh-huh. some stage in their lives, right? Uh-huh. So, and then, <clears throat> And then other, if you look at if you look at across the whole adult population from 18 to whatever 80, um, the, the prevalence rate is probably about five or six percent. But obviously, young adults are much more likely to report uh, suicidal thoughts or, or suicidal behaviour. Um, and and also, if you think more broadly about sort of lifespan perspectives, is it? Mental health problems in general, or suicidal thoughts, or suicide attempts, or any form of self-harm, is really rare before puberty. Then puberty kicks in, and you start to see then the rise in mental health problems and the rise in self-harm and suicidal behaviour. And actually, <clears throat> during adolescence, that is the steepest curve, or steepest steepest rise in increase in risk at any stage in the whole of the life. So that that crucial bit of adolescence is so. So, so important. And also remember that, that most mental health problems will have manifest before your early 20s. So that's why it comes back to this message. I think I said it early on in this podcast is early intervention is absolutely crucial. Dealing with people's early life trauma, doing what as much as possible because never mind the fact that personally people will benefit and socially people are benefit, will benefit, of course. But even economically, it makes sense. So, I mean, and it's awful talking about people's mental health or people's lives in terms of money, but the, the return from investment, investing in early life, will be paid back absolutely manyfold by people having their mental health protected as they go through life. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need to do so much more in early, mm-hmm. early life. Absolutely. I'm just checking I've understood that one about the, the two studies that you did there. Um, were you saying... That the it was more that people who were older wouldn't report or admit that they'd had the suicidal thoughts. Is that why the statistics were lower? Well, it's just yeah. So yeah, basically. And then if you think let's get into technical in terms of the design of these studies is because if so basically if I have a study of across the lifespan, yet older people will tend to report um, less suicidal thoughts, right, uh, compared to younger people. So if I then focus, if I only if I just do a study of younger people, mm-hmm. then I'm getting this. Uh, all, most of them are, or more of them are going to report suicidal thoughts. Whereas when I do the whole adult population, that basically, it just, it just basically, um, it hides the different rates of um, suicidal thoughts across the different life, life periods. Mm-hmm. And, um, but for me, I think the message is that um, suicidal thoughts are probably more common than people think and, and, um, and never ever dismiss suicidal thoughts or never dismiss self-harm. It's always trying to understand, well, what is, 
causing that, what's going on, yeah. and then obviously what can we do to help. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other part, I'm not sure I'm understanding, so I'll just check as well. Um, when you were saying that the, the highest risk is going through adolescence. Rate, rate of risk. So rate, rate of risk. So if you look at... Um, People can't see in the podcast, I'm doing a thing with my hand, which looks like a slope. But yeah, so if you think that any form of self-harm or suicidal behaviour is very rare before puberty, but then from that period, say, and it's obviously um, different for girls and boys, so um, the, the onset of self-harm and suicidal thoughts comes earlier in girls than boys. And, but basically that rate of increase in those that period then from puberty through to your mid-20s, that's the steepest... Um, rate of increase in onset of or, of or experience of suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts, then it levels off mm-hmm. and then decreases. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we look at self-harm, self-harm, and there's very few sort of longitudinal studies on this, but there's a famous study from New Zealand which shows that most, so by the age of 16, uh, one in five girls will have self-harm, right? So age of 16, one in five girls will have 20% will have self-harmed. And and basically, but most of them, 95% will have stopped self-harming by their mid-20s. So what it illustrates is that critical window of, of, of early life is so, so important. And that's, how recent have we known, had recorded um, information about young people and particularly women self-harming? Well, there was a... Um, there was a famous, in adolescence, there was a famous study called the Child and Adolescent Self-Harm in Europe study in the 1990s, which first showed this. Um, but we conducted work here in Scotland. We did a, a similar, the same survey in Scotland and we published that in 2009. So we know, we've been known that rate is definitely that one in five for girls. So it's about, in general, if you, if you look at all sex um, genders, it's about minimum 10%. And then obviously, uh, then different groups of LGBTIQ plus rates of self-harm and suicidal behavior, markedly higher. Um, then you add into that people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, higher. Um, so there's lots of then a more subgroup analysis you can do, but we've been doing that for some time, mm-hmm. the, that gender difference. Mm-hmm. Just maybe to summarize what I'm understanding so far, because I'm keeping track, that we were talking, you were talking about entrapment and what might be going on for an individual there and then as friends or relatives um, the, the signs to look out for if someone's experiencing this entrapment and then how we could ask them and then you talked briefly about uh, keeping people safe. When I um, worked as a support worker with Mikey's I remember being quite cynical about safety plans. You know, service users might have them from other organisations or from ourselves and it felt quite kind of ticky boxy. You know, okay, who could you speak to if things are feeling really bad? Or have you thought about having a bath and putting on a candle? I'm not in any way saying that these aren't mm-hmm. useful interventions to do. But reading your book, the thing that changed my attitude towards safety plans was getting somebody involved really res- listening to them and mm-hmm. and w- when they're hopefully feeling well well enough to do that um and collaborating and having the safety plan together is there anything else that feels important to say about well, no. so safety planning when i first came across safety plans uh-huh. i mean i, I was the, um needed some convincing because they, they are relatively straightforward and simple um interventions and so just for those of you who don't know what a safety plan is so a safety plan is this six steps of brief intervention in which you ask somebody to think about um, the warning signs that a crisis is escalating and then 
steps uh, two and three really are looking at people you can contact or places you can go to distract you when you, that crisis may be escalating. And then you've got obviously contact, professional contacts is the next step. And then the last step and step six is keeping the environment safe. So you're, you can hopefully in that moment of crisis um, not act on your thoughts. Because one of the big things we know is that suicidal thoughts wax and wane, they come and go in waves. And what I think with a safety plan is really helpful is trying to keep somebody safe on that when those suicidal thoughts and urges are really, really high. Um, and so a safety plan, I think, is really, really important in that regard. But crucially, though, and I think you've highlight, highlighted already, is that the, it's a collaboration, right? It's not, and it's, so safety plans are used widely, but I would argue that they're often used in a way which isn't opt optimal. So, for example, you shouldn't send somebody away with a safety plan and ask them to complete it on their own. Part of the completion of the safety plan is that sense of compassion, that relationship building with somebody. But also when persons, when you're getting them to complete with you the safety plan, it's at each step, you're sense checking it, you're working out what's the pros and cons of each step. Well, actually, especially especially in the sort of what you do if a crisis is escalating. So, and, and are they including things in the step which are, prag are pragmatic? practical and they'll actually use mm -hmm. and so then you're helping the person problem solve so uh, so i think to me to my mind that bit of it's it's working collaboratively to problem solve and having somebody think through in advance of so the, the reason we think it's effective is somebody then has thought through what they'll do the next time a crisis escalates and that planning helps the person keep themselves safe and we've just done a feasibility study of doing safety planning and telephone support in Scotland and and again we've 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 written up some of the findings of that and what we found is one of the key findings is that this is with people who'd attempted suicide we completed a safety plan with them in hospital and then we offered them up four or five telephone calls over the next four or five weeks when we know people are really vulnerable and in that four or five week period from our study 79% of the people who completed a safety plan in hospital used it at least once in the next 45 weeks and they found it helpful and we did <clears throat> qualitative interviews to see what people thought of it so i think it is really important but it's a collaboration it's about again collaboration connection connection and compassion those things have to be at the heart of a safety plan it's not just that one page document it's that relationship building and co-problem cool solving yeah co cool problem solving i like that thank you the Speaking of Suicide podcast, we're often interviewing people who have been bereaved by suicide themselves and a very common question, which I think we've looked at already today to some extent, is the why. But the other thing that, that people often talk about is the what ifs. What if I had done this differently? What if I had done that differently? And living with this really acute grief and... Um, so I wonder what um, what do you want folks to, to hear, what message to give them in that context? And I'm a big believer in asking good questions as well. And I wonder, are, are there kinder questions? I, th I think people ha have to go through their questions. You can't say, don't ask that question. But sometimes maybe we can also point to them once you're tired of that question or feel you're not getting mm -hmm. any answers. Might be a bit yeah, it's such an important one. And um, as somebody who's been twice bereaved myself, as well as meeting so many amazing people um, who've been, I've had the honour of sharing their, their stories of their own grief. 
I think it's recognizing that for me, it's about, yeah, there are those what ifs and those what ifs will always be there. And I actually, I talk a lot about what ifs in, in the book. And, but I think it's part of it is accepting that we'll never know the answer to some of those what ifs. We'll never know what was in the mind of our loved one in those minutes before they died. And that's, and it, and part of that's acceptance. Um, part of it is overcoming the guilt, the shame, the anger, and that all changes. I think that changes over time and it's different experience differently for everyone. Recognizing that everybody's grief is unique and is different. And that certainly in my experience and the research evidence will tell us that things do, do get better, they change. Now, life will never be the same again. I think that's, that's just the reality. But the way in which we can manage or cope with that or respond to that changes. And, and so, so I think that there is hope. And what I've tried to do in the book actually is talk about some of the hope and the hope that, um, that, that maybe we can do something which will prevent others experiencing the loss that we've experienced and the pain that we've experienced. But also just making sense of, of that for some people, the, one of the conclusions is, well, actually, our loved one is now at peace. And there's that sense of, well, thankfully, they're no longer suffering. But for me, it's about two, I suppose two messages. It's just us, all of us just recognizing that our grief is different. For everybody's grief is different. There's something definitely unique about the grief associated with suicide and other causes of death. Um, and everybody goes through that differently. But, and, that, um, and that no two days will be the same. And there could be days and periods in which things would seem absolutely fine. And then the next year, utter something that's just triggered an utter flood of tears and despair. And and I think it's just having, maybe having somebody that, that you can reach out to in those moments and support. And, they, and again, I talk about that, try and provide some guidance for those who are maybe trying to support somebody who's bereaved. And part of it is just being there for the person on their terms and um, and then whatever that person wants and needs. But, it, but again, recognising um, you rarely will say the wrong thing. Again, if you're guided with a sense of common humanity, compassion and sort of authenticity and sort of that's the guiding principle, I think, for just responding to somebody. Because there, for because the stigma still remains and, and so many people still talk about the stigma of people crossing the road not to speak to them. And that, but that's often out of fear and ignorance. And it's not, I mean, ignorance in the true sense of that word and that's... Yeah. They just don't know they don't know what to say and they're frightened they're fear they're terrified of saying their own thing and i think so it's just again trying to normalize these conversations and actually one of the great new developments in scotland has been where it's got uh, the national suicide prevention leadership group is piloting in two areas in scotland thus far a bereavement service so that so hopefully then that will be when, when that's evaluated hopefully then that will be then basically rolled out across the country because the reality is at this moment in time, if you're bereaved by suicide, the response you get is patchy. And but yeah. what we need to do is build on the best evidence to get people the support that they need. But when they need it, so that could be today or tomorrow, or the day after their bereavement, or it could be three months later or a year later. It's just provide having no supports in place. And that's something we are doing because when I say we, I mean at the national level, at, at government level, and trying to do that, to do as much as we can to basically help people's through their grief, but also we recognise that people breathe by suicide are also at risk of suicide, and it's trying to do whatever we can to protect them and ensure their voices are heard, and that hopefully, hopefully, um, 
it can assuage some of the pain they're going through. Yeah. Rory, you've been working in this area, is it 25 years? Uh-huh. Is that right? Yep. What, what keeps you going? What gives you hope and enables you to um, do this work? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, uh, as somebody who, when I first got involved in the field of suicide, I wasn't directly affected. And then obviously, as I talk about in the book, I've been twice bereaved to important people in my life. So what that has illustrated to me is a, the pain of, of bereavement by suicide, but how difficult also, but how difficult it is to predict suicide. And, and I suppose if I can help with the work that we do, and it's not just me, it's a team of people I lead and working with people internationally and with people that have the experience, if I can do something to help somebody else understand their own pain or the pain or, or understand why their loved one may have died by suicide or do something that we can stop even one more person dying by suicide, that's what keeps me up, it keeps me going and that's why I do it every single day to try and make one difference because a difference in one person that's enough for me and that and I think that we all can make a difference I suppose my last thing to say is even though we were talking earlier about the overwhelming nature of suicide prevention it's so complicated yet so so complicated but small things can make a difference and like that sense of reaching out to somebody a neighbor or a friend smiling rather than growling at somebody talking nicely and treating people with respect, those small things. We all do things like that. We're building a better world, a world which is more compassionate, a world which is more supportive, a world hopefully, hopefully, where suicide is less common. A world where our pain can be held by another, they can smile at us and just, yeah. yeah, yeah Thank absolutely. you, I love that. Like uh, distilling that simplicity of kindness, yeah. So thank you so much Not at all, no, thank you so much for coming through. Yeah. Shona McPherson was talking to Professor Rory O'Connor. And a reminder, Rory's book, When It Is Darkest, is published by Vermilion. A reminder of Mikey's line, if you or somebody you know needs help or advice, you can text 077-86-20-7755. That's 077-86-20-7755. Or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm. Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Speaking of Suicide is made possible thanks to Mikey's Line and the ongoing support of D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast. It really helps us get it out there to people who might find it helpful. And if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or telling your story, get in touch with Mikey's Line via social media. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio limited production. And the music is Nana by Tom Ireland.